minister of the reality of them in our hearts, who have been regenerated, who have experienced that life-giving work of your Spirit, but also that sense of longing to experience it more and, and more consistently. We say in truth that all that thrills our soul is you, you are the bread of life, you are the fountain of living water. Your Spirit surely unfolds to us your glory, and the sweetest times we have are when we are nearest to you, and yet... Those times are more short-lived than we want, and we pray and ask that you would continually reveal yourself to us. And we know that you do as we seek lives of obedience. You said you would disclose yourself to us. And so as we seek to obey you and to know you, we, we ask only this, that it comes with your spiritual power, that we would be made more like our Savior as we see you with greater and greater clarity. And to that end, we ask you to help us this morning as we open your word together. And we pray this in the magnificent name of Christ. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Yes, we are moving on to another chapter. So Revelation uh, chapter 2. As we begin this morning our look at Christ's messages, the exalted Christ speaking from heaven through the Apostle John, written for us on the pages of Scripture to the seven churches. To the seven churches. And so we begin this morning with a look at the church of, at Ephesus, a look at the church at Ephesus. And before we come to look at the church at Ephesus, let me just briefly make a note of something that we note commonly because it is so common, and certainly even from our circles, those being Reformed circles or those circles that are particularly committed to the exposition of Scripture or sound theology. And it is that connection between truth and love, between doctrine and doxology. And as we know, there often is an attempt to put a divide between those things, that a church is known either by its doctrinal commitment, and sometimes that is, produces a coldness, a kind of uh, hostility, or not hostility, but emptiness toward any kind of humility and gentle love. And then you have others who think, well, if we skew all the doctrine and all the concern about fiddling with the fine details of theology and so on, and we just pursue love, and so you end up with a church with a lot of emotion but very little light, and it creates an atmosphere just as well that does not honor Christ. And most importantly, in both of those, that can deceive one about their true relationship with Christ. But in Scripture, those things are, of course, never divorced. And ultimately, that comes together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, by His very incarnation, the embodiment of the nature of God. He was the truth. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the very embodiment of truth. Everything He spoke with truth. Everything about His life was truth. His whole commitment was to truth. It was to reveal the truth about God. It was to fulfill the truth of Scripture. And yet He was, as well, the very expression of the love of God the gentleness and the tenderness of God, but even more the love of God that sacrificed the greatest or made the greatest sacrifice in giving his life as an atonement for our sin. So truth and love go together in reality, but not always in the experience of the church. And that's what the Apostle John is addressing this morning. He's in his message to the church at Ephesus, which is again the message of Christ, it reveals to us that Christ evaluates true righteousness and the maturity of His church by the sincerity of love, not only doctrine and deeds, not only by emotion, but by the sincerity of love for Him and love for the brethren. Christ rejects cold commitment to the truth, and He calls to righteous love. 
Now, we're going to address this in each of the messages to the churches with the same basic pattern because that's how they're given in Scripture. There is the context, the context of the church. There is a commendation from Christ to each of these congregations. There is the confrontation of sin among the congregation, except for two. There is a call to repentance and a covenant promise of hope to help them endure. And so with that, let's begin and look at his message to the church at Ephesus. Begin reading with me first, however, the passage beginning in chapter 2 and it's verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that is his opening message to the churches. And just as a brief comment, we noted that while he has a message to each of these seven churches, and each one is specific to that local congregation in its historical context and with its particular sin that it is dealing with or persecution that it is enduring, they are as well together a message to the church. A message to the church, to the church throughout the ages who is always in different places and different times and to different degrees dealing with the same situations that we find here. And here in the church of Ephesus, it is a situation in which there is an extreme commitment to the truth, even endurance for the sake of the testimony of the truth, and yet it is from a heart that is not driven by love for Christ. So let's know first, just briefly, the context of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, the context. And note its historical context, just to give a, a general idea. Ephesus was actually one of the chief cities of Rome. It was one of the wealthiest cities of Rome. It was a harbor city, and so much commerce came from other lands. It was a center where many roads passed through the land, so people were always coming and going. It was a cosmopolitan kind of city. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles from all around the region. It was a bustling city. It had prestige. It had a cosmopolitan atmosphere and wealth. And therefore, it was also a city that came with the vices of those kind of blessings. It was a city known for being rife as well with crime and prostitution that was also associated with its false worship of the Temple of Diana, which we'll mention in a bit. Politically, the city functioned, one noted, as the Roman provincial capital of Asia Minor. So this was no minor city. This was no insignificant city. And it was also the home of many architectural wonders. There was a theater which sat cut into the side of a hill that was, could seat 24,000 people. I had a picture. I don't know if I got it in time. There it is. 
So you could go see that if you go there today. It was a magnificent place. It was a place where I'll note in a bit where Paul was taken by some of the leaders of the city of Ephesus, uh, dragged there because of his preaching of the gospel and the, the fruit that it was producing in people. And as with any prominent city, it boasted Roman baths and gymnasiums, a stadium that hosted gladiator fights, significant athletic events in the Roman Empire, chariot races, and among other things. It was also a great center of learning. As a matter of fact, it was one of the greatest centers of learning for medical knowledge, and two of the most prominent Roman physicians came out of that school in Ephesus. It was also a center of idolatry and magic, particularly. Ephesus was the place where there was the Temple of Diana, a home base for the cult of Diana, or also known as Artemis. Diana is the Roman name. The people, one noted, of Ephesus regarded the city's relationship to her in terms of a divinely directed covenant relationship. They were a special chosen place to be honored with her temple, a unique manifestation of her presence and a center of worship for her. This religious commitment or prestige motivated then a construction of her temple that was considered to be one of the largest structures of the ancient world and was labeled one of the seven wonders of the world. It was magnificent. Now, there were other gods who were worshipped there. Idolatry was all over the place, but it was the Temple of Diana that took pride of place that had its most significant presence in this cosmopolitan city. And along with all of her other vices, as noted, there was a common practice of magic in the arts and the occultish and those kind of things. So this was a bustling city. It was a wealthy city. It was an immoral city. It was a prominent city. It was a politically prestigious city. And yet it was a godless city to its core. And it is in that context that Paul brought the message of the gospel. And we have some significant accounts, significant accounts of Paul's ministry there. As a matter of fact, Ephesus was privileged to receive one of the longest ministries of the Apostle Paul. Three years he was there ministering to this church. Acts 19.10 tells us that he spent two of those years reasoning, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus from where all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. For two years he taught. For two years people came, they heard the gospel, and then it spread out to other lands. For two years the gospel was going out to that region of the world through this ongoing and stable ministry, or fairly stable ministry, of the Apostle Paul there. Moreover, he had a particular relationship with this church that was both personal and full of ministry that exhorted them in the truth. And so he says in Acts 20, 31, or Luke tells us, that for three years Paul did not cease to admonish each one of the elders with tears. That was Paul's testimony when he was giving a message to the elders. For three years he went from house to house. For three years he opened the scriptures with them. For three years he had a personal ongoing ministry with the people of this congregation. And they witnessed extraordinary works of power. Acts 19, 11 tells us that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or even aprons were carried from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out. So this was a church of particular spiritual privilege. It had a pedigree not only within the Roman Empire but even among the Christian churches at that period of time. And they displayed dramatic repentance. They were a church who demonstrated the work of the Spirit among them in a dramatic way. Upon receiving the gospel and seeing the works of power, 
through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, they had a massive turning to the Lord. And in this turning to the Lord, they dramatically began to rid themselves of all of their old practices and all the vestiges of their magic and idol worship. And he says this in Acts chapter 19. We're just jumping in here. We'll skip the funny story that some of you are aware of with the sons of Sceva, some Jewish exorcists who tried to cast out a demon, but the demon jumped on them and chased them away naked. Uh, and then you have the ministry of the Apostle Paul who was actually casting out demons and the power of that true ministry brought about the conviction and the conversion of many. And it says there that also in verse 18 of Acts 19, many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And he says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. But as the word was prevailing and people were repenting and turning from their idolatry and magic, it made those who made their living off of that practice very angry. And it was after the account of the many turning to the Lord that there is an account that takes up the rest of chapter 19 of Paul being dragged before the, the leaders and the council uh, there in Ephesus. And their complaint against him was that he was ruining their business essentially. And he was effectively let go and then he continued, continued to minister. But this was the context of the church uh, at Ephesus. And that persecution that was raised up against the Apostle Paul continued on in various degrees in that land. As a matter of fact, one early church father called Ephesus in later years a highway of the martyrs and, and noted that many Christians were taken there to be thrown to the lions and to be persecuted for their faith. And so with his personal ministry, with his time there, with his dedication to this local church, they are also recipients of one of the most profound letters in the New Testament. And we're familiar with the book of Ephesians. And what a glorious display of the profound wonder of our salvation. It is there that we go again and again to learn of the riches of God's eternal love for his people, his election before the foundation of the world of those he would redeem, the coming of Christ to purchase a church with his blood and through his resurrection to be Lord over all of the nations and Lord over the church. It's there we learn of the dramatic rescue of our being dead and sin and made alive together with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places of Jew and Gentile coming together in one body and unfolding of the great mystery of God to which all of the angels look with wonder. It's there we get the magnificent prayer to grow in our understanding and comprehension of the love of God in Christ Jesus to be filled up with the fullness of God. It's there that he teaches about Christ who gives gifts to his church so that we might be filled up to the maturity of Christ, to mature man to the full measure of the stature of Christ. It's there that we're called out and given the great glory and the, the mystery of marriage that is a reflection of Christ's very union with his church in the new covenant. And we hear about spiritual warfare and the great truths of the believer's armor and how we are to live successfully against all of the spiritual deceptions and attacks in this world. A glorious epistle, and they are the receivers of it. And it was given great privileges then as a church of the New Testament. And not only that, but beyond Paul's own ministry, it was given 
unique pastoral oversight. Timothy was left there, 1 Timothy 1.3. He was pastor, but even more than a pastor, specifically an apostolic representative there in the church, appointing leaders, establishing there a firm foundation on the word of God. The church is the pillar and the support of truth. So Timothy ministered there, one of the prominent ministries uh, in the New Testament. Acts also tells us that Priscilla and Aquila ministered there, that Apollos ministered there. And most likely later, the Apostle John went and ministered there and wrote his Gospel of John. And it was the received most of the New Testament letters. Ephesians, we already mentioned, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 2nd and 3rd John were likely to there. And early church tradition, as I know, mentioned that John wrote his Gospel from there. And here it is the first of all of the churches to be mentioned by the risen Christ. So this is a significant church. This is a church that had received much blessing. This is a church above all the churches who had received a unique theological grounding in the glories of the revealed mystery of the new covenant and the glory of Christ. And had received the, the best of the best of the early Christian leaders of the first century and even after that into the second century, some of the apostolic fathers were at this church. So this was a church of great privilege. In some ways, we could say we relate to that in our day. The current church, though rife with many false teachers in the same way, we enjoy a plethora of sound theology and resources. We stand at the end of 2,000 years of church history with doctrine to be worked out and examples to follow and examples to avoid. We have unlimited access to the best of Christian theology. We can go to our phones or computers and have everything at a fingertip to learn and to study and to consider. We can hear the gospel read to us. We can hear scripture come up at any time again on our devices. We could have access to the best commentaries and to the best teachers and recorded sermons for over, for over a very long period of time. And so they were very blessed and in some ways we can relate to that in our own way. And so in this, secondly, Christ condemns them, uh, condemns them, commends them. He commends them. He commends them for their faithfulness. And he begins this commendation by establishing first who the glory of the one who gives it. And he begins then with a description of Christ. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. And if you'll remember, this picks up on the image of Christ in the vision of himself that he gave to the Apostle John back in 13, that he is the one who had, uh, was in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, girded as he was in his garbs as a high priest. Here what he adds is this. He adds two things. One is that instead of just saying, as he did earlier, that he has the stars, seven stars in his hands, here it says he grasps them, he holds them. He uses a strong verb here. It's an intense word. It speaks of how he holds them tightly. He doesn't merely support them, but he exercises intense sovereign rule and concern towards them. And he walks here among them. He's not merely standing in the midst of the lampstands, but he's among the lampstands here, moving and walking and going around, watching and observing and seeing and looking and evaluating his people. It speaks of an intimate kind of relationship that he has with them. And indeed, we are the temple of God. 
and God dwells in our midst. But here the language is meant to show of his active engagement, one said, with his churches in their everyday experience of life. He knows the works of the church. He knows the condition of the church. And he knows the condition of each individual in it. His knowledge is comprehensive. It is intimate. He is always watching not only the church of Ephesus, but the church through all times, even us. In the same way, it could be said that he walks and he moves and he intimately cares and knows and evaluates us as well. This is a word to Ephesus, of course, and it is a word to us. And what does this one who speaks from heaven, who is glorious, who knows with perfect and infinite knowledge, with absolute omniscience, the condition of the church, not only in the deeds that are observed and external, but in the condition of their heart? What does he say? Well, first he begins with a commendation. He begins with a commendation and he says this in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. He goes on to say in verse 3 and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is an incredible affirmation of the obedience of the church. In fact, everything here that he commends the church for is what every church would want to be commended for. They are the very evidences of the fruit of salvation. They are the very evidences of a genuine relationship with God, a genuine response to the gospel. He says, I know your deeds or your works. And the term here refers to these visible acts. I see what you do. I see that you have deeds of faith. Again, Scripture repeatedly holds out obedience as the evidence of what is internally true of a person. He says you will know them by their fruits. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And here he indicates that your deeds are good, that you are doing things that are an evidence of the gospel. They are faithful deeds. And this is important. Indeed, that pun wasn't intended. But indeed, the final judgment is based on the evidence of a person's life. I'm just going to mention it to you, but Revelation 20, 13, it says, When all stand before the judgment seat of God, there the judge being Christ, it says that the books were open and their deeds were accounted for. The fruit of their life was ungodliness, those who are in that scene. But here, he says, the fruit of their life is godly deeds. It is godly deeds. And this is a great commendation. He says, I know your deeds, I know your labor. And this term is a bit more intense. It speaks not only of the outward work, but the effort behind that work, the diligence behind that work. It's a, it's a picturesque word in a sense. It speaks of the hardness of it. It, it. Where deeds could be like you picked up a shovel and dug a ditch, this term of the label would, would speak more of the effort that's shown by the sweat of your brow. And the dirt that is on your face and the soreness of your muscles. It is, they labored for the gospel. Paul encouraged all believers in the resurrection to say, Your toil is not in vain. Whatever you sacrifice, whatever labor that you give, himself is the very example is worth it because of the resurrection. He described it among his sufferings and his ministry, just to give you kind of a sense of this. Let me mention it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for example. There are many, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5, he mentions this in his message to the church there. He says, 
And this is the commend, commending of his own ministry. He says in verse 4, actually, in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors, in sleeplessness and hunger and on he goes. So this is the effort, this is the energy, this is the sacrifice, this is the diligence in the Christian work that they were involved in. Next, he mentions their perseverance, that you have perseverance. And the term here carries the idea of faithful endurance in difficult circumstances. So there is a word, makathia, that refers to patience in relation to people. It has a, it's kind of an emphasis on this. This is a different word, hupomene, and it has the idea of patience in adverse circumstances and difficulties and tribulations and in hardships. And he said, you experienced those and you endured, you kept faithful, you continued on, you persevered. And you did so for my name's sake. You did so so that the name of Christ would not be dishonored. You did so so that the name of Christ would be exalted among that community. And you did so so that you would not be disobedient to the Lord. This is quite a commendation. There is, of course, those who persevere and all the way to death, as it'll say later in Revelation, there are those who did not love their life to death. But even here, their perseverance is even more comprehensive. It's not merely perse perseverance in the pressure and the difficulties of the threat of death, but it's perseverance in the threat and the temptation to compromise the sin. They didn't give in to it. They didn't give in, as we'll know later, to the teaching of the false teachers who came in. They were faithful, they endured, and they persevered. As a matter of fact, this great commendation, he brings these two things together. In Revelation chapter 14, 3, listen to this. He says, or excuse me, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow after them. And so he's giving them essentially a similar commendation here. And he gives them one lastly here, a commendation for their spiritual discernment, for their labors, for their diligence and for their spiritual discernment. For there, drop down to verse 6. He says, Yet this you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And that is connected as well with their ability to discern the true teaching of those who claim to be messengers of God and apostles. He said, And you're not able to tolerate that evil, but you put them to the test. You're not able to bear with false teaching. You can't tolerate it. And when those come in who claim to be speaking for God, and yet there is error even in the truthfulness of the message or the reality of their lives, you call them out. You call them out and you can't put up with it. You won't compromise with sin. This is a, indeed incredible commendations. Incredible commendations. They apparently had took the warning of the apostle when he spoke to them in Acts chapter 20. When he gave a farewell address to them, a passage that you're familiar with, he warned the leaders of the church at that time. He said this, Be on your guard, in verse 28, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, this is Acts 20, 28, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he said, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. They apparently took that message and they took it to heart and it drove them to be extremely committed to the truth and to discerning and sniffing out any error that would come in. And note here that the warning that Christ gives them is the error not outside the church. That's what they had repented of. It was the error within the church. It was the error of those who claimed to be apostles and they were not. And the same with the Nicolaitans as well. We'll talk more about the Nicolaitans actually when we get to the church at Pergamum. Here I'm just going to very briefly mention them. They were a group associated with false worship. There's some question as to their identity. You can't be absolutely certain. Some connect it with Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6, essentially that he apostatized in his teaching and had some followers. That has some early church witness. Also of early church witness is that it wasn't the, uh, Nicholas himself, but it was those who misunderstood his teaching and it was the followers of him who then came up with a perverse version of the gospel. And others try to connect it with some, some details of the name and the way the words are put together with the worship of Baal. And there is somewhat of connection with the false teaching of Balaam in verse 14 in the message to Pergamum. But essentially, just to boil it all down is this, is that the Nicolaitans apparently were a group of t Christian teachers, a sort of a, an aberrant view uh, group within the Christian church who promoted idolatry and immorality, the licentiousness to life. Maybe the very thing that Paul is going to address later in Romans 6 about who turned the grace of God into licentiousness, he says, of false teachers uh, actually, I think in Second Peter, but in First uh, Romans chapter six, he is saying that we don't turn the grace of God into an excuse to sin, but rather to pursue holiness. Well, the Nicolaitans didn't follow through with that, most likely, and they taught and allowed compromise with sin. And, and these things Christ hated, and he says, "You also hated," and he commends them for that. He commends them for that. And I would just make a couple of notes here on that for us as we look to his confrontation. With all of this commendation, we also have an affirmation of the things that he loves. He does commend them for not tolerating evil men, and neither should we. He does them commend them for calling out false apostles, and he does commend them for hating evil and those things that bring compromise to the gospel. And so before he gets to any correction, we could ask ourselves, do we live that way? Do we, as a church and individuals, hate the things that Jesus hates and love what he loves? Do we hate the things that he hates and love what he loves? And are we as, as a church, and I think many are, and hopefully we would be counted among them, that would be sure to be careful to protect the purity of the gospel and know that that is important, to not compromise with what is false. However, this is really striking, and it's striking for this reason. To look at this commendation from Christ, it's hard to imagine that anything negative could be said. If we were to have this con uh, commendation toward a church, we'd say, well, that's it. Let's, let's leave the room. Let's go celebrate. Let's, let's leave it as it is. And these are tremendous commendations by Christ, but he doesn't. He doesn't. We would say, isn't this the very model of godliness, the very model of faithfulness, the very model of mature faith? Wouldn't this be a church of all of the churches? If any church was to be not corrected, but only commended, wouldn't this be one? And Christ says, no. With all that commends you, he says, I have something against you. 
And there we get into the confrontation of sin. And that's in verse 4. After all of these wonderful commendations, their faithfulness, their commitment to the truth, their ridding themselves of error, their persevering under difficult circumstances, their rejection of the seduction and the lure of the world, he says this, I have something against you, and what is it? You have left your first love. You've left your first love. He doesn't fault them on their actions. He doesn't fault them on their commitment. He doesn't fault them on their doctrine. He confronts them on the reality of their heart. He confronts them on the absence of uncontested love to Christ as the motivation for everything that they were doing. The term here, protos, has the idea of exceeding everything else in importance. Exceeding everything else in importance. That's the use of it here. In all of their work and effort in the name of Christ and seeking to be obedient to their duties for Christ, they actually lost sight of the person of Christ and an intimate relationship with him and a relationship of love. First love here, there's discussion. Some hold that first love is the, uh, the affections, is sort of that, that uh, excitement, if you will, towards the gospel and towards Christ. Others say it refers primarily to love for the brethren. And really it's a combination of those things. Love for Christ necessarily involves love for the brethren. It's one and the same. Although the priority here is most certainly or most likely their love for Christ. That affectionate, sweet love for Christ. That love and obedience to him that flows out of a true and sincere experience of his grace and the forgiveness of sin. It would be a lack of what Paul put out as the very driving force of his life in Galatians 2.20. He said, the life that I now live, I live by faith. And the Son of God, do you remember the rest? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what drove the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And in essence, he's saying that's what's lacking with this church. You're doing a lot of things, but you can't say with equal sincerity that it's for Christ who loved you and gave yourself up for you with the kind of humility and gentleness and affection that is displayed behind the Apostle Paul in that statement. And so the principle here is this, the Christian life is fundamentally lived out of relationship with Christ. It's not fundamentally lived out of a commitment to a doctrine, though that is absolutely necessary. It's not fundamentally lived out of a commitment to a particular religious or theological heritage, although there's nothing wrong with that as long as it conforms to Scripture. It's fundamentally lived out of a Real and genuine relationship with Christ, and that's what he's calling them back to. One said this, uh, there is, uh, y'all got the email, there, there are printed copies, I don't know if they were taken or not, of a chapter out of J.C. Ryle, and the chapter is Lovest Thou Me, in which he unfolds this with much more detail than we will, but he says this statement that I'll quote here, he says, true saving Christianity is not the mere believing a certain set of opinions and holding a certain set of notions. Its essence is knowing, trusting, and loving a certain person who died for us, even Christ the Lord. So Christ here is rebuking a strong commitment to sound doctrine without a matching humility and love that's produced by a genuine understanding of the gospel. And it's been often said this, which is true in various forms it's been said, but doctrine is not truly known 
Doctrine is not truly known until it has a humbling effect on the heart, until it shapes you to have the character of Christ. Doctrine isn't truly known from a biblical sense just by knowing facts and data and details of history and language or whatever. Doctrine is known when it creates in our heart a deeper sense of the glory of God, of our own sinfulness and the rescue that we've experienced in Christ by the gospel, with a greater love for the brethren. That's what he's after. One said this, it's a veneer of busy outward activity without the inward motivation of sincere love. And that's what we want to guard against. And so he's against a compromise of the truth, but he's equally against truth held on to without a corresponding love for him and love for the brethren. So again, his evaluation of their spiritual maturity was not on their doctrinal commitment first or their external ministry, although he commends them from all of those things or personal sacrifice. It was on their heart toward him. And so when Christ says he's against something, it's serious. But this begs the question then, are these true believers? Are these true believers? Or are these non-believers? Well, he's writing to the church, and the reality is it's a mixture of both. One can be guilty of this on either side. Either guilty of this as a non-believer who knows doctrine but is empty of the true life of Christ, or of a true believer who has compromised on what it truly means to serve Christ. And so are these true believers? Again, some are, some aren't. First of all, in the worst case, there were some among this second generation church, which was at least about 40 years old by the time that they received this letter, who stood on their theological heritage, who had, or those who had been swept up into the church there, but not so much into a love of Christ as much as they were swept up into the environment of a strong doctrinal commitment, but they never really knew or loved the Christ of theology. And so many are in the church today. Paul had to write to the church at Corinth and say this in 1 Corinthians 6.22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, cut off. You may be there among the church, but that doesn't mean that you love Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself addressed this, didn't he? Wasn't that the very issue when he came and ministered among the religious people, the religious nation of the Jews, and particularly as he could had regular confrontation with the leaders. Now, let me just take you back to the first century and make this general comment. From our circles here, if we were to go in, was it Doctor Who had the time machine? Whoever, whatever. But if we were to go back in time and get in a time machine and jump back into the first century, right before Jesus came, let's just say about 10 years before he came, and we were looking for a synagogue to join, because they didn't have a church, if we were looking for a synagogue to join, we would have joined the church, the first synagogue of the Pharisees. They were doctrinally sound. They were a group among all the groups who had a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. They understood their situation in Rome was the discipline of God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. They had a fastidious concern for the details of Scripture and for sound theology. They were meticulous to not offend in any part of the law and of the tradition that had been handed down to them. They were externally extremely committed, and that's why though a small number, it's estimated at 6,000 by Josephus, they wielded an enormous influence on the spiritual life of the nation of Israel. In other words, they were essentially the shapers of the general spiritual life. There were other groups uh, there of 
the nation of Israel. And even after the temple was destroyed, it was the Pharisees who shaped much of the Judaism, even that we see the fruit of now. They had incredible influence among the people. They were respected, they were honored, they were looked up to, and they were emulated in many ways. And yet, what did Jesus say to them? He says in verse 39 of chapter 5, in one of his many confrontations, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He says, it is in fact these that testify about me, but you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not, and here it is, have the love of God within yourself. He's going to say to them later, if God were your father, you would love me, in John chapter 8. You have all of this commitment, but you have no internal love for God. You are not internally dealing with your sin. You are not irregularly depending on the grace of God in the covenant. You are not truly believing in his word. You have created a religion with a great deal of diligence and knowledge that is completely empty of the love of God. So much so that when God comes and exposes you, when he comes in the person of Christ, the only thing you can think to do is to kill him. And so that's where he is. And, and we could say that even in some churches today, if Christ were to actually come and have that same confronting ministry, what would be the response? Repentance or hatred? So they never knew the, the heart of the law with all of the detail of the law. They never understood that one commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And so that's one end, and that's one end that we tend to get the closer to, uh, or the, the certain circles, is to kind of hold on to a doctrinal tradition but to be devoid of any life. But there's another way that this same principle can show up at the other end. And it can be, and this is for those who are non-believers, those who are driven not so much by details of theology, but they're driven by a church experience that's really active in doing things, in doing ministry, particularly those things that display spiritual power and reality. But again, there's no true love for Christ. And that, he says, in Matthew chapter 7. Again, you're familiar with this. This is... Unfortunately, probably many that are caught up in churches like Elevation and Vox and others, not all but some. And he says this, or the charismatic movement, the extreme versions of it. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You had some kind of what you perceived as evidence of spiritual power, but you had no inward love that yielded to the law of God and obedience and true heartfelt faith. You had active ministry that was supposedly focused on my name, and yet you lacked a love for Christ. They lacked a love for him. And so there's the danger there of getting swept up into a doctrinal system but never actually loving the Christ of that doctrine. There's a danger of being swept up into active ministry but loving the ministry and all of the things it seems to imply but never really loving the Christ who is at the heart of all true faith. And in the best case scenario, that's the worst case scenario, in the best case scenario, and certainly some among the church at Ephesus and throughout the ages have fallen into both of those categories, but the best case scenario is that there are some who are genuine believers who have just simply grown spiritually cold to the inward fellowship of Christ and living out of a humble love for him. 
They had been moved away, as Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. So these are those who are active in ministry. But at some point along the way, what may have begun well turned into ministerial effort that was driven more by selfishness and self-serving reasons than it was for the glory of Christ. At some point, it began to, to lack in the heart the true drive of a Christ-centered faith. There was activity, but there was not sanctification. There was a lot of energy spent, but there was not a lot of pursuit of Christ in the midst of it. Again, we're just going to mention these briefly, but he says this. In 1 Corinthians 3, he warns against those. He says, if a man builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire that is the fire of judgment, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." And there he's saying there are these teachers who were coming in who were building on Christ. So it was for some a legitimate ministry, but the quality of their works was not good. Some it was gold, some it was silver, some it was precious stones, some would be tested and receive the commendation of the Lord as this was a ministry built for my glory and for the right reasons. Others would receive the censure and the discipline and those sad words that everything that you did for me is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. It goes away. I was not honored by it. And in a broader sense, Paul gives this warning to all of the church at Corinth. And God gives it to all of us. You remember well the 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is to us as a church. This is to every church. Regardless of your ministry. He says it doesn't matter if you speak with tongues. But you don't have love, you're a clanging symbol. If you have some prophetic ministry and you know mysteries and have knowledge and faith but no love then you're nothing if you make great sacrifices and great surrendering of possessions or your own health and livelihood but without love it profits nothing that's what drives it that's what must drive everything and so he rebukes them here and he says you have all this stuff but I have this against you that you have left your first love and I would just simply make this comment for us, all of us. We have, as a, we have an amazing capacity to, the heart, to miss the heart of Christ so often as a people. Don't we? We have an amazing capacity to miss the heart of Christ by getting wrapped up in ourselves, in our own agendas, our own abilities, our own sacrifices, our own deeds in place of sincere, humble love for Christ. We have an amazing capacity for that. It's like our, our hearts, if we're not diligent in watching over our hearts, and if we're not diligent in our sincerity of our commitment and fellowship, that that kind of coldness and that kind of hardness can easily come in. We know that when we go to ministries, not out of a sincere desire to serve, but where there's complaining and grumbling, a sort of disdain at the effort or the sacrifice that it costs. When we don't really want to serve, we'd rather just kind of go off into our own world and do our own thing. There's a, there's a thousand ways that it can happen. But at the end of all of them is that we're wrapped up in ourselves rather than being wrapped up in love for Christ. I want to mention this second one. 
and I'm going to mention it just briefly here. We're going to come back to some of these elements. I want to do was going to do each church, but I was really as going through here realized that we need to, to go a little slower on this one point, and particularly for us, we need this. I need this. We all need this. Uh, and not because of us, because of an issue here, but because of us, because of our circles and where our particular temptations lie. And it is this, and this will be the message that we'll do, of how to discern between holiness driven by legalism and holiness driven by love. How do we discern between legalism and love? Because they look very similar on the outside sometimes, but they produce two very different fruits and are driven by two very different motivations. And so we're going to spend some time to, to pull the car over, as it were, and uh, look at that. But let me here just mention this, what his call is, very briefly, as we come into the Lord's table. He says, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. He says, therefore, in verse 5, and this is the call to repentance, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. And really, this is quite encouraging because Christ never leaves us in our sin. He never leaves us in the condemnation. There is always, even to the last, the hope and the promise of salvation and of forgiveness and of restoration, whether it be unto salvation or whether it just be unto a restored uh, fervor for the Lord. When there's repentance, when we're willing to deal with our hearts, when we're willing to acknowledge our sin and turn back to the Lord. And that is the first thing that he addresses. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. The first thing that has to happen then if we are to experience that restored and renewed intimacy with Christ, is that we have to grasp the reality of our sin. We have to know from where we have fallen. We have to acknowledge the condition that we're in. We have to say that with all that I'm doing, Christ is not pleased. And so it is remembering from where we have fallen, it is grasping sin. This, again, is addressed to the church, and so it's certainly them as a body of believers but it is also addressed to each individual that is in the church. And so they must then acknowledge from where they've fallen, and he says, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or the works. Now again, this is both startling and encouraging. Encouraging because it says there can be, there can be repentance, that there is hope. There can be a return to works that the Lord is pleased with. There can be reconciliation. There can be a fellowship. But it requires repentance. And that really requires two things. One I already mentioned, let me say it again. Repentance requires a true ownership of our sin, our personal guilt. Not the idea of sin, not a general vague sense of sin, but our sin, our guilt, our failure individually. So for me it would be my sin, my failure, my guilt. For you it would be the same. There is owning it, our personal responsibility for God, that then moves one to turn away from the sin and turn to Christ in faith. And that's repentance, turning away from sin, grasping our own sin, inwardly turning away from the love of it, inwardly turning away from the practice of it, inwardly turning away from that to Christ, to commit ourselves to Him in faith. That trust in Him as the Savior for our sin, the guilt of it. That trust in Him as the Lord who gives us not only salvation but direction and speaks to us in how to honor Him. It's a turning to obedience to Him and gratitude for His salvation. 
And so there is hope. There is hope. But this hope requires repentance. It requires the desire to be restored. Nobody repents who doesn't desire to be restored. And nobody repents from sin that they don't feel the conviction of. Right? That's why it has to begin with the conviction of sin. Otherwise, we're not turning from sin. Who knows what a person is turning from? But one said this, kind of summarizing, turning away, he says, turn away from the thinking that makes you presume on Jesus. Turn away from the things that make you lose sight of his worth. Turn away from the things that dull your appetite for the Bible. Turn away from the things that steal the time you have for prayer. In other words, those spiritual disciplines. Not turning away begrudgingly, but turning away out of love for Christ. And do the works that you did at first. Again, we'll pick up on this more later. Let me just mention it here. And that's a striking statement. He uses the same term there. It's not a different word for works. Erga. Your deeds. Translated deeds. The idea here is this. Is is that if he commends them for his works. I know your deeds. And that's a commendation. And then he's turning around and saying. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. And then he calls into repentance. And he says does works. And so that's, you're like, what works? The same works that he just said were inadequate? The same works that were devoid of the love of God? What works is he calling? What are the works that they did at first? What more could they do than they were doing and being committed to the truth and persevering under the gospel and so forth? What else could they do? What are these works that they did at first? Well, first of all, he's not talking about more ministry activity or doing more stuff. He's saying those works that were born out of a true devotion to Christ. And I think even here there's an emphasis on this. Those works that reflect a true love for the brethren. Now there's a lot to say on this. But we'll leave it there for today. These works that you did at first. These works that manifest a sincere and a humble faith. These works that manifest a true love for the brethren. And he gives a promise with it. He says this, if you do repent, you'll be restored. And he says in hope in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so there it is. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You'll remember that from the Lord often in his ministry when he gave his parables. It's essentially saying those who have spiritual discernment, those in whom the Spirit of God is working, those who have been brought from death to life and can hear the voice of Christ when he speaks and will respond. And that's what he calls them to hear. To hear. And he gives the promise, a covenant promise, and that's the last point. But again, we'll swing back around to this next week. But the covenant promise is this, that I will grant you to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's what he purchased for us. Essentially, he's saying this, I will grant you to know the fruits and the joys of fellowship with me as the gift of eternal life. And I will give you the promise that one day you will know it in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth, in the paradise of God. Well, let's leave it there and come to the Lord's table. And ask the Lord this as we come to reveal to us anywhere where we have let that coldness grow in our heart. One said this, and I leave it to us as we come into the table. How long has it been since you felt the holiness of God exposing all your selfishness and the moral filth of your soul? How long has it been since you felt the weight of all your guilt 
and realized anew that you had no deals to make, no appeasement to offer, nowhere to flee, and no hope that God might forget what you have done, only to experience anew the wonder of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. That's what we want. To remind again of His holiness, our guilt, and His magnificent grace in Christ that invites us to come to enjoy from Him all of the mercies that is available in Christ and to walk with Him in love and in faithfulness. So the table reminds us of those things. So as the men come forward, let me pray and then they'll hand out the elements. Father, thank You for Your tender mercy to us to to give us Your Word and, O Christ our Lord, to warn us from heaven. And You do so because You know our tendency to drift. But You do so as well so that we who truly have a heart for you that you have given to us by faith, by the work of the Spirit. Hear those words and say, Lord, let that not be me, but rekindle and restore afresh in me the wonder of the gospel, that Christ would be precious, obedience would be easy, and that you might be glorified. Remind us of these things as we come to your table. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.